Section 19 of Jail for Freedom by Dora Stevens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Janet O'Reilly of Utah. www.O'Reilly-Fire.com. Jail for Freedom by Dora Stevens. Part 3, Chapter 22, Burned in FG. The suffrage score now stood as follows one vote lacking in the senate fifteen days in which to win it and president wilson across the sea the democrats set february tenth as the date on which the senate would again vote on the amendment without any plan as to how the last vote would be won we were powerless to secure the last vote that was still the president's problem knowing that he always put forth more effort under fire of protest from us than when not pressed we decided to make as a climax to our watchfire demonstrations a more drastic form of protest we wanted to show our contempt for the president's inadequate support which he promised so much in words and which did so little in deeds and so on the day preceding the vote we burned in effigy a portrait of president wilson even as the revolutionary fathers had burned a portrait of king george footnote this is the inscription on a tablet at the state house dover green dover in commemoration of delaware's revolutionary leaders signers of the declaration of independence caesar rodney thomas mccain george reed at the urgent request of thomas mccain caesar rodney being then in delaware rode post haste on horseback to philadelphia and reached independence hall july fourth seventeen seventy six the following day news of the adoption of the declaration of independence reaching dover a portrait of king george was burned on dover green at the order of the committee of safety the following historic words were being uttered by the chairman compelled by strong necessity thus we destroy even the shadow of that king who refused to reign over a free people End of footnote. a hundred women marched with banners to the center of the sidewalk opposite the white house mingling with the party's tricolored banners were two lettered ones which read only fifteen legislative days are left in this congress for more than a year the president's party has blocked suffrage in the senate it is blocking it today. the president is responsible for the betrayal of american womanhood and why does not the president ensure the passage of suffrage in the senate tomorrow why does he not win from his party the one vote needed has he agreed to permit suffrage again to be pushed aside president wilson is deceiving the world he preaches democracy abroad and thwarts democracy here as the marchers massed their banners and grouped themselves about the burn a dense crowd of many thousand people closed in about them a crowd so interested that it stood almost motionless for two hours while the ceremonies continued the fire being kindled and the flames leaping into the air miss sue white of tennessee and mrs gabriel harris of south carolina dropped into the fire in the urn a figure of president wilson sketched on paper in black and white a sort of effigy deluxe we called it but a symbol of our contempt none the less mrs henry o havemeyer of new york lifelong suffragist and woman of affairs said as master of the ceremonies every anglo-saxon government in the world has enfranchised its women in russia in hungary in austria in germany itself the women are completely enfranchised and thirty-four women are now sitting in the new reichstag we women of america are assembled here today to voice our deep indignation that american women are still deprived of a voice in their government at home we mean to show that the president at this she was caught by the arm placed under arrest and forced into the waiting patrol wagon thereupon the police fell upon the ceremonies and indiscriminate arrests followed women with banners were taken women without banners were taken 
women attempting to guard the fire, women standing by doing nothing at all. All were seized upon and rushed to the patrol. While this uproar was going on, others attempted to continue speaking where Miss Havemeyer had left it, but each was apprehended as she made her attempt. Some that had been scheduled to speak, but were too shy to utter a word in the excitement, were also taken. When the black Mariahs were all filled to capacity, nearby automobiles were commandeered and more patrols summoned, and still not even half of the women were captured. The police seized their raids suddenly. Orders to arrest no more had evidently been given. Someone must have suggested that a hundred additions to the already overcrowded jail and workhouse would be too embarrassing. Perhaps the ruse of arresting some and hoping the others would scamper away at the sight of authority was still in their minds. After a brief respite, they turned their attention to the fascinated crowd. They succeeded in forcing back these masses of people halfway across Pennsylvania Avenue and stationed an officer every two feet in front of them. But still, women came to keep the fire burning. Was there no end of this battalion of women? The police finally declared a military zone between the encircling crowd and the remaining women, and no person was allowed to enter the prescribed area. For another hour, then, the women stood on guard at the urn, and as night fell, the ceremonies ended. Sixty of them marched back to headquarters. Thirty-nine had been arrested. The following morning, February 10th, saw two not unrelated scenes in the Capitol. Senators were gathering in their seats in the Senate chamber to answer to the roll call on the suffrage amendment. A few blocks away in the courthouse, 39 women were being tried for their protest of the previous day. There was no uncertainty either in the minds of the galleries or of the senators. Everyone knew that we still lacked one vote. The debate was confined to two speeches, one for and one against. When the roll was called, there were voting and paired in favor of the amendment, 63 senators. There were voting and paired against the amendment, 83 senators. The amendment lost, therefore, by one vote. Of the 63 favorable votes, 62 were Republicans and 31 Democrats. Of the 33 adverse votes, 12 were Republicans and 21 Democrats. This means that of the 44 Republicans in the Senate, 32, or 73 percent, voted for the amendment. Of the 52 Democrats in the Senate, 31, or 60 percent, voted for it. And so it was again defeated by the opposition of the Democratic administration and by the failure of the President to put behind it enough power to win. Meanwhile, another burlesque of justice dragged wearily on in the dim courtroom. The judge was sentencing 39 women to prison. When the 26th had been reached, he said wearily, How many more are out there? When told that he had tried only two-thirds of the defendants, he dismissed the remaining thirteen without trial. They were as guilty as their colleagues. But the judge was tired. Twenty-six women sent to jail is a full judicial day's work, I suppose. There was some rather obvious shame and unhappiness in the Senate because of the petty things they had done. The prisoners in the courtroom were proud because they had done their utmost for the principle in which they believed. Senator Jones of New Mexico, chairman of the committee, and his Democratic colleagues refused to reintroduce the Susan B. Anthony Amendment in the Senate immediately after this defeat. But on Monday, February 17th, Senator Jones of Washington, ranking Republic on the Suffrage Committee, obtained unanimous consent and reintroduced it, thereby placing it once more on its way to early reconsideration. Chapter 23. Boston Militants Welcome the president it was announced that the president would return to america on february twenty fourth that would leave seven days in which he could act before the session ended on march third we determined to make another dramatic effort to move him further boston was to be the president's landing place 
boston where ancient liberties are so venerated and modern ones so abridged no more admirable place could have been found to welcome the president home in true militant fashion wishing the whole world to know that women were greeting president wilson why they were greeting him and what form of demonstration the greetings would assume we announced our plans in advance upon his arrival a line of pickets would hold banners silently calling to the president's attention the demand for his effective aid in the afternoon they would hold a meeting in boston common and there burn the parts of the president's boston speech which should pertain to democracy and liberty these announcements were met with official alarm of almost unbelievable extent whereas front pages had been given over heretofore to publishing the elaborate plans for the welcome to be extended to the president eulogies of the president and recitals of his great triumph abroad now the large proportion of this space was devoted to clever plans of the police to outwit the suffragists the sustained publicity of this demonstration was unprecedented it actually filled the boston papers for all of two weeks a deadline a diagram of which appeared in the press was to be established beyond which no suffragist no matter how enterprising could penetrate to harass the overworked president with foolish ideas about the importance of liberty for women had not this great man the cares of the world on his shoulders this was no time to talk about liberty for women the world was rocking and a great peace conference was sitting and the president was just returning to report on the work done so far the boston descendants of the early revolutionists would do their utmost to see that no untoward event should mar the perfection of their plans they would see to it that the sacred soil of the old boston common should not be disgraced it was a perfect day lines of marines whose trappings shone brilliantly in the clear sunshine were in formation to hold back the crowds from the reviewing stand where the president should appear after heading the procession in his honor it seemed as if all boston were on hand for the welcome a slender file of twenty-two women marched silently into the sunshine slipped through the deadline and made its way to the base of the reviewing stand there it unfurled its beautiful banners and took up its post directly facing the line of marines which was supposed to keep all suffragists at bay quite calmly and yet triumphantly they stood there a pageant of beauty and defiant appeal which not even the most hurried passerby could fail to see and comprehend there were consultations by the officials in charge of the ceremonies the women looked harmless enough but had they not been told that they must not come there they were causing no riot in fact they were clearly adding much beauty people seemed to take them as part of the elaborate ceremony but officials seldom have sense of humor enough or adaptability enough to change quickly especially when they have made threats it would be a taint on their honor if they did not pick up the women for the deed one could hear the people reading slowly the large lettered banner mr president you said in the senate on september twentieth we shall not only be distrusted but we shall deserve to be distrusted if we do not enfranchise women you alone can remove this distrust now by securing the one vote needed to pass the suffrage amendment before march fourth the american flag carried by miss catherine morey of brookline held the place of honor at the head of the line and there were the familiar mr president how long must women wait for liberty and mr president what will you do for woman suffrage the other banners were simply purple white and gold when we had stood there about three-quarters of an hour said catherine morey superintendent crowley came to me and said we want to be as nice as we can to you suffragette ladies but you cannot stand here while the president goes by so you might as well go back now i said i was sorry but as we had come simply to be there at the very time we would not be able to go back until the president had gone by he thereupon made a final appeal to miss paul who was at headquarters but she only repeated our statement the patrol wagons were hurried to the scene 
Washington, and the arrests were executed in an exceedingly gentlemanly manner. But the effect on the crowd was electric. The sight of ladies being put into patrols seemed to thrill the Boston masses, as nothing the president subsequently said was able to. We were taken to the house of detention and there charged with loitering more than seven minutes. As Mrs. Agnes H. Morey, Massachusetts chairman of the Women's Party, later remarked, it is a most extraordinary thing. Thousands loitered from curiosity on the day the president arrived. Twenty-two loitered for liberty, and only those who loitered for liberty were arrested. Realizing that the event of the morning had diverted public attention to our issue, and undismayed by the arrests, other women entered the lists to sustain public attention upon our demand to the president. The ceremony of the common began at three o'clock. Throngs of people packed in closely in an effort to hear the speakers and to catch a glimpse of the ceremony presided over by Mrs. Louise Sykes of Cambridge, whose late husband was president of the Connecticut College for Women. From three o'clock until six, women explained the purpose of the protest, the status of the amendment, and urged those present to help. At six o'clock came the order to arrest. Mrs. C. C. Jack, wife of Professor Jack of Harvard University, Mrs. Mortimer Warren of Boston, whose husband was head of the base hospital in France, and Miss Elsie Hill, daughter of the late Congressman Hill, were arrested and were taken to the house of detention where they joined their comrades. Dirty, filthy hole under the courthouse was the general characterization of the house of detention. Jail was a paradise compared to this depraved place, said Miss Morey. We slept in our clothes for women to a cell on iron shelves two feet wide. In the cell was an open toilet. The place slowly filled up during the night with drunks and disorderlies until pandemonium reigned in the evening superintendent crowley and commissioner curtis came to call on us i don't believe they had ever been there before and they were painfully embarrassed superintendent crowley said to me if you were drunk we could release you in the morning but unfortunately since you are not we have got to take you into court when the prisoners were told next morning the decision of chief justice bolster to try each prisoner separately and in closed court they all protested against such proceedings but guards took the women by force to a private room the matron who was terrified said miss morey shouted to the guards you don't handle the drunks that way you know you don't but they continued to push shove and shake the women while forcing them to the ante-room as an american citizen under arrest i demand a public trial was the statement of each on entering the judge's private trial room while the trial was proceeding without the women's cooperation some were tried under wrong names some were tried more than once under different names but most of them under the name of jane doe vigorous protests were being made to all the city officials by the individuals among the throngs who had come to the courthouse to attend the trial this protest was so strong that the last three women were tried in open court the judge sentenced everybody impartially to eight days in jail in lieu of fines with the exception of miss wilma henderson who was released when it was learned that she was a minor the women were taken to the charles street jail to serve their sentences the cells were immaculately clean said miss morey but there was one feature of this experience which obliterated all its advantages the cells were without modern toilet facilities the toilet equipment consisted of a heavy wooden bucket about two and a half feet high and a foot and a half in diameter half filled with water no one of us will ever forget that foul bucket it had to be carried to the lower floor we were on the third and fourth floors every morning i could hardly lift mine off the floor to say nothing of getting it downstairs so there it stayed Barry potier managed to get hers down but was so exhausted she was utterly unable to get it back to her cell 
The other toilet facility provided was a smaller bucket of water to wash in, but it was of such a strangely unpleasant odor that we did not dare use it. The Boston reporters were admitted freely, and they wrote columns of copy. There was the customary ridicule, but there were friendly light touches such as militant highlights to be roommates at Vassar College, and then to meet again as cellmates was the experience of Miss Elsie Hill and Mrs. Lois Warren Shaw. Another, Superintendent Kelleher didn't know when he was in Congress with Elsie Hill's father that he would some day have Congressman Hill's daughter in his jail. And there were friendly serious touches in these pages of sensational news, such as this excerpt from the front page of the Boston Traveler of February 25, 1919. The reporter admired the spirit of the women, though weary from loss of sleep the fire of a great purpose burned in their eyes it was a sublime forgetting of self for the goal ahead and whether the reader is in sympathy with the principle for which these women are ready to suffer or not he will be forced to admire the spirit which leads them on photographs of the women were printed day by day giving their occupations if any noting their revolutionary ancestors ascertaining the attitude of husbands and fathers mrs shaw's husband's telegram was typical of the support the women got don't be quitters he wired i have competent nurses to look after the children mr shaw is a harvard graduate and a successful manufacturer in manchester new hampshire telegrams of protest from all over the country poured in upon all the boston officials who had had any point of contact with the militants all other work was for the moment suspended such is the quality of mrs morey's organizing genius that she did not let a solitary official escape telegrams also went from boston and especially from the jail to president wilson official boston was in the grip of this militant invasion when suddenly a man of mystery one e j howe appeared and paid the women's fines it was later discovered that the mysterious e j howe alleged to have acted for a client whether the client was part of the official boston no one ever knew there were rumors that the city wished to end its embarrassment sedate boston had been profoundly shaken sedate boston gave more generously than ever before to militant finances and when the prison special arrived a few days later a boston theatre was filled to overflowing with the crowd eager to hear more about their local heroines and to cheer them while they were decorated with the already famous prison pin something happened in washington too after the president's safe journey thither from boston chapter twenty four democratic congress ends it would be folly to say that president wilson was not at this time aware of a very damning situation the unanswerable prison special a special car of women prisoners was touring the country from coast to coast to keep the public attention during the closing days of the session fixed upon the suffrage situation in the senate the prisoners were addressing enormous meetings and arousing thousands especially in the south to articulate condemnation of administration tactics it is impossible to calculate the number of cables which as a result of this sensational tour reached the president during his deliberations at the peace table the messages of protest which did not reach the president at the peace conference were waiting for him on his desk at the white house even if some conservative boston suffragists did present him with the beautiful bouquet of jonquils tied with a yellow ribbon as their welcome home will any one venture to say that that token of trust was potent enough to wipe from his consciousness the other welcome which led his welcomers to jail will any one contend that president wilson upon his arrival in washington and after changing his clothes piously remarked by the way tumulty I want to show you some jonquils tied with the yellow ribbon that were presented to me in Boston. I am moved, I think I may say deeply moved by this sincere tribute, to do something this morning for woman suffrage. Just what is the state of affairs? 
and does there seem to be any great demand for it we do not know what if anything he did say to secretary tumulty but we know what he did he hurried over to the capitol and there made his first official business a conference with senator jones of new mexico chairman of the senate suffrage committee after expressing chagrin over the failure of the measure in the senate president discussed ways and means of getting it through an immediate result of the conference was the introduction in the senate february twenty eighth by senator jones of another resolution on suffrage senator jones had refused to reintroduce the original suffrage resolution immediately after the senate defeat february tenth now he came forward with this one a little differently worded but to the same purpose as the original amendment this amendment although to the same purpose as the original amendment was not as satisfactory because of possible controversial points in the enforcement article the original amendment is of course crystal clear in this regard this resolution was a concession to senator gay of louisiana democrat who had voted against the measure on february tenth but who immediately pledged his vote in favor of the new resolution thus the sixty-fourth and last vote was won the majority instantly directed its efforts toward getting a vote on the new resolution on march first senator jones attempted to get unanimous consent to consider it senator wadsworth of new york republican anti-suffragist objected when consent was again asked the following day senator weeks of massachusetts republican anti-suffragist objected on the last day of the session senator sherman of illinois republican suffragist objected and so the democratic congress ended without passing the amendment on the face of it these parliamentary objections from republicans prevented action when the democrats had finally secured the necessary votes as a matter of fact however the president and his party were responsible for subjecting the amendment to the tactical obstruction of individual anti-suffrage senators they waited until the last three days to make the supreme effort that the president did finally get the last vote even at a moment when parliamentary difficulties prevented it from being voted upon proved our contention that he could pass the amendment at any time he sat himself resolutely to it this last ineffective effort also proved how hard the president had been pushed by our tactics but it seems to me that president wilson has a pathetic aptitude for acting a little too late the fact that the majority of the southern contingent in his party stood stubbornly against him on woman suffrage was of course a real obstacle but we contended that the business of a statesman who declared himself to be a friend of a measure was to remove even real obstacles to the success of that measure perhaps our standard was too high it must be confessed that people in general are distressingly patient easily content with pronouncements and shockingly inert about seeing to it that political leaders act as they speak we had seen the president overcome far greater obstacles than stood in his way on this issue we had seen him lead a country which had voted to stay out of the european war into battle almost immediately after they had so voted we had seen him conscript the men of the same stubborn south which had been conspicuously opposed to conscription we had seen him win mothers to his war point of view after they had fought passionately for him and his peace program at election time he had taken pains to lead men and women influential and obscure to his way of thinking i do not condemn him i respect him for being able to do this the point is that he could overcome obstacles when his heart and head were set to the task since our problem was neither in his head nor his heart it was our task 
to put it there. Having got it there, it was our responsibility to see that it churned and churned there until he had to act. We did our utmost. For six full years, through three Congresses under President Wilson's power, the continual democratic resistance, meandering, delays, deceit, had left us still disfranchised. A world war had come and gone during this span of effort. Vast millions had died in pursuit of liberty. A czar and a kaiser had been deposed. The Russian people had revolutionized their whole social and economic system and here in the united states of america we couldn't even rest from the leader of democracy and his poor miserable associates the first step toward our political liberty the passage of an amendment through congress submitting the question of democracy to the states what a magnificent thing it was for those women to rebel their solitary steadfastness to their objective stands out in this world of confused ideals and half-hearted actions clear and lonely and superb End of section 19